You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me again back by popular demand, Paul Doroshenko. I'm very popular today because of some tweets that I put (laughs) last night about the uh, Jody Wilson testimony yesterday, Jody Wilson-Raybould testimony. I've had CBC here. I've been on another podcast today. So there is popular demand. Two podcasts in one day. Two podcasts in a day. Well, are you going to leave your regular gig on the Driving Law podcast for podcast fame and fortune elsewhere? I was speaking to a prosecutor today and uh, we were discussing other options other than than being lawyers. And, you know, I I can tell you that I'm going to continue to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Podcast host, probably not incredibly profitable. I don't think it's particularly profitable, but I I think I would probably get tired of. Uh, I already get tired of hearing my own voice. I might get tired of hearing my own voice if I uh, if I had to hear it all the day, all the time. I do um, commentary driving sometimes, especially when I have my children in the car. So mm-hmm. I, police officers were <laughs> trained to do this. So you basically you comment on what you see to remind yourself of your duties as a driver. And um, the uh, I get tired of hearing my own voice when I do it. Fair enough. Well, you're going to have to tolerate your voice for about another 40 minutes while we talk about uh, three significant driving law issues. And the first is a second sneaky change to the Motor Vehicle Act made by our government. Well, we knew that there were changes afoot, but we didn't really know how this was going to play out. But yeah, so this week, without um, any fanfare or warning... Uh, and this is one thing that they do. They've changed the Motor Vehicle Act with respect to 90-day administrative driving prohibitions. So these are the driving prohibitions that are issued when, Kyla Lee? Uh, well, when you generally, when you're being charged with a criminal offense in relation to driving or when you're being investigated for a criminal impaired driving offense. So they're issued based on a failure or refusal to blow into either an approved instrument or an approved screening device or to provide blood or providing samples into an approved instrument, so the evidentiary samples, at the police station that result in readings in excess of 80 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood. But when do you have to be over 80 for an ADP? Well, that's the thing. So, um, but I think before we get that, we should um, draw the line of distinction between an ADP and an IRP. So we defend both of these probably more IRPs than anybody. I think we could say that fairly safely. Um, and IRPs are issued on the basis of a, a roadside screen or an approved screening device test or an alleged refusal, refusal to provide a sample to an approved screening device. ADPs are not issued on the basis of impairment, um, may be issued on the basis of a refusal to an approved screening device or a refusal to provide a sample to an approved instrument at the detachment, so an evidentiary breathalyzer, uh, or circumstances where you provide a sample into an evidentiary breathalyzer that is a prohibited value. And just sneakily, we see the Motor Vehicle Act has been amended. I guess the final change was just put in as a result of a uh, ordering council changing it all up. And yeah. I mean, the change on its face 
is arguably to bring the Motor Vehicle Act section into step with the criminal code. Because now, of course, the new offense is at or over 80, um, two hours after ceasing to operate or have care and control of a motor vehicle. And it used to be in excess of 80 milligrams of alcohol within three hours of operating or having had care and control of a motor vehicle. And it was always arguable. Um, and I know that the government has had often taken the position in hearings, whether it was at the tribunal level or on judicial review, that the within two hours was not within two hours before, but could also include within or within three hours before, but could also include within three hours after. But now we see this language mimicking exactly what's in the criminal code. Excuse the car alarm that's going on outside because we're recording this today in our office. Um, but that alarm should be alerting every one of us about what is going on here. Uh, we had um, a significant... Um, discussion uh, in January when people realized that you could be charged on the basis of breath samples obtained when you had been detained in your living room or in the bar or in the restaurant. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people said, well, that would never happen. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be arrested or, or forced to provide a sample detained in your kitchen when you're sitting uh -huh. there having a drink. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, we said, you just watch, it will happen. It has happened. And it has happened. But uh, we're still, in this case, um, it fully facilitates it. And your probability of defeating it for being over 80 after you drove without having anything to drink before driving is now almost eliminated because... Here are the steps that are required if you want to prove that, um, and, and the onus is on you to prove it, um, that uh, it shouldn't apply to you. So the steps are, you must establish that you, did, you consumed alcohol after ceasing to operate the motor vehicle. That's one. You must prove all of these things. The next thing is that you had no reasonable expectation that the police would be required, that you would be required by the police to provide a sample of your breath or blood. And finally, that your alcohol consumption is consistent with a blood alcohol concentration as determined by the analysis of the uh, breath or blood um, and that it would you would conclude on the basis of that and what you had to drink that it was less than 80 milligrams in 100 milliliters of blood. Um, so to explain that in <laughs> lay people language, because <laughs> that... that explanation you just gave is straight out of the Motor Vehicle Act. Well, you could sort you, of. You could go back and delete that if you want. To no, it's fine. Straight um, basically, you have to prove <clears throat> that you only drank after you stopped operating the motor vehicle. And operating isn't uh, defined in the legislation as, you know, actual driving on the roadway. It now is operating includes care or control of the vehicle. So basically, after you stopped occupying the driver's seat of the vehicle. Um, so if you got home and you sat in your driveway for an hour um, and drank a Mickey in the driver's seat of your vehicle in the driveway during that hour you were sitting there, too bad for you. You're operating the vehicle because you, you know, you were still in care and control. So after operating, you consume the alcohol and that you didn't think that you would be asked to provide a sample. So you have a positive obligation to give evidence about your state of mind. There is no way in which you can satisfy those three requirements under the legislation unless you give evidence. 
So it, it essentially fo- forces you to give up a right, and essentially a right to silence. And I want to come back to that, so remind me, Paul. And, and the last thing is you have to show. So then you have to get toxicological evidence to show that what you drank after you stopped operating the vehicle would have put you at the level calculated on the breath test and below 80 at the time that you were operating the vehicle. So you have to hire a forensic expert to give that evidence. And you have to prove all of these things. Yeah, it's not one of the three, it's all of the three. So if you manage to persuade them that you didn't have a reasonable expectation that you would be providing a sample um, because you drove home and you had no reason to believe that the police were gonna come, that's still not enough. You have to prove also that um, that you consumed the alcohol afterward. You must prove it. And you must prove also that your blood alcohol concentration would have been under 80 milligrams at the time you were driving. All three of those things. Um, so yes, the police now, uh, if they get you in the bar and believe that you've got alcohol in your body, can subject you to an approved screening device test if they believe that you've driven... Uh, then when they get you back to the detachment, if you provide a sample, even though you've been drinking in the bar, um, you will be uh, issued an administrative driving prohibition and you can defend it, but you've got to prove all three of those things, including that you did not expect the police to come and get you, ex- including that you uh, consumed alcohol afterward, and including that you, you were under 80 at the time of driving based on what you had to drink with the toxicological evidence. Now, the reason that that is actually really super problematic is because the administrative process isn't ever supposed to, unless it violates the you know division of powers issue, frustrate the criminal process. And from the defense perspective, now the administrative process does because you have to give all of this evidence that is identical language to the evidence you would have to give if you were charged criminally with the same offense. And these ADPs usually go alongside a criminal charge. So you have to make out your case for your defense for the criminal charge at the administrative stage, thereby arming, potentially, the police and the prosecution with knowledge of what your defense is going to be prior to you raising it in court and at a point in time where you have the right to silence. You have to do this, generally speaking, it's done through affidavit evidence that's given at the tribunal, or if you testify in the review hearing over the phone, um, your statements are going to be recorded in the decision, and you can be cross-examined on them later. This is really quite shocking that they've done this, and um, it uh, arises from um, ridiculously stupid legislation that was passed by the federal government that we heard uh, that we discussed fairly extensively in January. Uh, and these were changes to the criminal code, to the impaired driving provisions of the criminal code. But it wasn't it wasn't necessary to mimic exactly the process set out in the criminal code to facilitate the proper administration of the ADP license scheme. But the point is for them, the government, I think, is that they just looked at it and said, why don't we just copy what's in the criminal code? Well, they're foolish to do that, Paul, and I'll tell you why. You know what I'm going to say. No, I don't. Oh, your face is looking like you know what I'm going to say. Lots of times on the podcast, so we have controversy on the podcast because we're talking about controversial things, but a lot of the times Kyla and I agree about um, our sort of take on it, uh, I guess just because we're both coming at it with a lot of the same perspective. But um, well, Here's why the government's foolish to do this, Paul. Well, this is the point is I want to hear what you're, I want to hear this now. Go ahead. 
As you and I have discussed in previous episodes of this podcast and numerous media interviews for which we were slammed by certain lawyers who thought that we were blowing things out of proportion, but we'll see. Um, this legislation is going to be constitutionally challenged. And this aspect of the legislation is going to be constitutionally challenged because it essentially creates an offense for doing something that isn't dangerous to do and serves no public purpose. Um, and they could have written it in a more limiting way. But what's the quickest way to bring a constitutional challenge to a binding level of court? By challenging the exact same language in an administrative scheme. And what's more is if the challenge succeeds to this language in the administrative scheme as being unconstitutional, then there's no way that it's going to succeed or that it's going to be upheld in the criminal law sphere on identical language as being totally fine under the criminal code because of the huge increased penalties, the truly penal consequences, the fact that you get a criminal record automatically with no exceptions for an impaired driving offense. And by the way, you still have more rights in a criminal trial, very few more now, but still more than in the administrative process. So if this law falls in the Motor Vehicle Act, on a challenge to the Motor Vehicle Act, which if we get a case with this set of facts, we will challenge, and it likely will, they lose the criminal code. There's a Latin legal term I'm thinking of. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to use a Latin legal term because I, I almost never, ever do. But um, the uh, I, I, what you're saying is that if it applies in the context of the administrative scheme, it applies with that much more uh, force and effect in the criminal scheme. Is yes. What you're okay. So you're saying that this is unconstitutional yes. in the administrative scheme that the provincial government has brought in. Why? Why is it unconstitutional? Go back to Saint-Ange-Lamoureux, the Supreme Court of Canada and the Dinely decision and the cases that dealt with the Bill C-2 and the changes to the impaired driving scheme, where they said it was essentially an impossible burden for people to meet to provide the third prong of this evidence, which is that what you had to consume would have been consistent with the readings and that it uh, that you would have been under at the time. They said that it essentially created an impossible evidentiary hurdle um, that uh, that made the idea of rebutting an over 80 charge um, illusory. And then you take that uh, analysis, which was uh, done as a Section 7 analysis, but imported into the Section 8 context. I'm doing my whole argument here off the cuff. Well, I only read this today. Um, imported into the Section 8 context that was created by the Civia and Goodwin decisions, which say that the reviewability of the prohibition is a Section 8 issue, but... Um, it's the same issues that were before the court in Saint-Ange-Lamoureux and Dinely, and this is what you get. It's Unconstitutional. The, it's also the same issue that was uh, in court uh, in Syria. Sure. I mean, it's a, you, you, you can't defeat it because they've set an a, uh, impossible hurdle for you. Yes, exactly. Do we need a case where it's somebody's kitchen or somebody in the bar or somebody, you know, an hour afterward in order to run that constitutional be, It could be a case where somebody innocently drank after an accident um, or some other circumstance. I mean, you wouldn't want the, you know, the uh, Monty Robinson <clears throat> no. drank a bottle of whiskey to try and obstruct justice case, but there are innocent post-driving consumption cases, and this could be, you know, all we need is one of them. 
Well, I'm going to drive, and uh, I'll drive tonight at about 6 o'clock. Um, let me see. This is uh, on Friday morning. So I'll, my last time I drive on Friday will be at about 5 o'clock. And if the police want to come to my house at 6, I will have had something to drink. Um, they can uh, then compel me to, uh, they'll know that I drove at 5. They'll, uh, yeah, they if, can compel me to provide a sample. But here's your problem. If you're inviting them to do it, I think you have a reasonable expectation that you'd be asked to blow. No, I, I, I wouldn't still have a reasonable expectation to conclude that um, any police officer would come knocking on my door. But if they do and they find me there, I will have, uh, I will have um, uh, consumed alcohol. The only problem is that I still won't be over 80. Fair enough. <laughs> Mind you, with the back extrapolation formula, they could come at about 10 p.m. Um, and get me, and I'd probably be at 30 milligrams, and they could apply their back extrapolation program and put me back to uh, to 5.30. You have to be at 20, but yes. Yeah, but I'd be at 30. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you said you'd be at 10. I'm confused. Huh. I'm confused. Numbers are hard, okay? 10 milligrams an hour. <laughs> Numbers are hard. I'm sorry, we're talking a little bit maybe over a lot of people's heads today in this well, one. We have a very smart, dedicated group of listeners. And, you know, I don't want to talk down to the people that listen to this podcast. They've, you know, a lot of them have been listening from the beginning. And they're they're gaining familiarity with these complicated legal concepts through our discussion, I hope, or they're just listening to the sound of our voices and they like the sound of your voice. I don't mind the sound of my voice inside my own head. Okay. Most of the time. So moving on from this, in other nonsense that government thinks it can get away with using administrative processes to impose weird penalties on people, the city of Vancouver is working on a motion tabled by Councillor Melissa D. Genova, I'm not saying her name correctly, probably, um, which would have the city of Vancouver put pressure on the provincial government to allow licenses to be suspended and re- renewals of driver's licenses to be refused for people who owe money for unpaid bylaw tickets, namely fighting tickets in Granville's downtown uh, entertainment district the granville strip and you have something you you have a complaint about this as far as i'm concerned those people should pay their damn tickets well as far as i'm concerned the the city has no business taking uh people's driver's licenses in fact the power the municipal power to create bylaws has nothing to do with the provincial power over licensing roads and highways and so the the province can't be made to be the collections agent for a municipality why not because division of powers okay so your concern i mean my concern is that these people should pay their fine apparently their fine goes to the city yes so which, why should which the, i find disturbing how does that how does that use, happen because it's a violation ticket it's a bylaw ticket oh it's a bylaw ticket yeah what so what like and what's next parking tickets you don't pay your parking ticket and now you can't renew your license well why don't we just throw people in debtor's prison no we're not going to do that kyla this but it's not just that <laughs> look i was in traffic court today and i was overhearing many discussions as i do um one was with a bylaw prosecutor um and a police officer and they were talking about tickets that the city of vancouver frequently issues police issue them under the bylaws 
for people who are sleeping and living in their vehicles because it's a bylaw offense in this massively unaffordable city where numerous people are sleeping and living in their vehicles. Now, if you don't have enough money to pay rent and you're living in your car and then you get a ticket that you can't pay and then you can't renew your driver's license because you haven't paid that ticket, that bylaw ticket, because of the unaffordable city that you live in, then you lose your license, which means your ability to continue to sleep in your car goes away, and then where do you go? I think that's the point, is that they're trying to discourage people from sleeping in their cars, and that's the whole reason Well, then they should it. make affordable housing a priority. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Well, I think that, that you, you have a different argument there. You're, you're coming at it from the perspective of um, that people have a right to sleep in their cars when there's no other housing. No, they don't have a right to sleep in their cars, but they have a, a, a right not to be put in such a dire financial position by the city's desire to fill up its coffers when it already has plenty of money that it's not using wisely um, by persuading the provincial government to act as a, its collections agency. Like, give it a bat and go break the kneecaps of, of people who are struggling to make it. That's a little hyperbole, I think. I don't think so. It's essentially doing that. Imagine trying to do your job, run your businesses without your driver's license because you didn't pay your ticket for that bar fight you got in on Granville Street. I haven't gotten in a bar fight in a while. <laughs> the scar is healed mostly. Yeah. Um, the um, No, I mean, I, I, I don't want the city to have that power. I think the city absolutely should not have that power. I don't think it's, uh, it should be within the city's um authority to be directing the provincial government to deal with people's licenses. And I think the city can take its uh, correct and appropriate steps to collect on those fines. They can send them to a collections agency um, like every other city. And why should Vancouver get special treatment over all the other cities and towns and municipalities in this province? Well, I would assume that if they're going to do it for Vancouver, they would do it for every city. I don't think they'd be in a position to deny it to other cities if they're going to do that. But um, now, here's the other thing that... Really I, I, I think it's a non-starter. I think it's a non-starter oh. for a couple of reasons. I think it's a non-starter because of the councillor who's who's uh, proposed it. Um, it's not likely to get the support. I think it's a non-starter because it's, um, it's not something that there's any great legislative desire to do. Um, but um, And I think probably a number of people feel the same way you do. Well, it's also a non-starter because previously the city of Vancouver had tried to persuade the provincial government to do this for parking tickets, which is hilarious because it was actually directly related to driving, right? Parking and driving are, are things that are within the legislative authority of the province. And the city uh, tried to pressure them to allow the licenses to be withheld on the basis of unpaid parking tickets. And the provincial government said no. And they said that parking and city finances were, were not close enough uh, to a connection to the Motor Vehicle Act that they would do that. Well, now when you're talking about fighting tickets and bylaw tickets for, you know, I don't know, having an unleashed dog or something, that's so far removed from the powers fulfilled by the Motor Vehicle Act that I don't think you can make the case for it. And I think you're right. I and agree. if they did I amend the agree. act, I think that you, at least you amendment me. would be unconstitutional as outside the scope of authority the provincial government had to regulate in that area. Like, you can't withhold somebody's license for a nonsense reason. You can't say that, you you know, only people who are blonde can have driver's licenses. Well, that gets back to the old issue of is driving 
having a driver's license a privilege or a right? It's both. I know. And um, you, you you might get chewed out in court by a judge if yeah. you say that it's, uh, that it's a right. For all the clients and future clients listening, I will never stand up in court <coughs> and say that driving is a right. You do, however... Um, have a right to have a driver's license if you meet all the requirements that are set out in law. So they can't arbitrarily keep you from getting a license. If you show up there, you've passed the test, you paid the fees, you're physically capable. Um, they can't say, you know, we don't want to give it to you because the color of your skin or we don't want to give it to you just because. Uh, there has to be a reason. So yes. that means, you know, that spells out a qualified right. I mean, you have a right to life, liberty, and wander around in the streets, and you can lose that right if you commit a crime and you end up going to jail. Um, but you have a right to use the roads. Uh, you have a right to walk down the sidewalk. And if you comply with all of the requirements um, in law, then you have a right to drive. The only thing is it's a right that is highly restricted and that you can lose. Yes. And that is what I would put in the decision if I was ever decide, deciding that as a judge, which well, I will never be. I was going to say, they'll never give you the case now. <laughs> the, um, the other thing I want to say about this before we move on to our last topic, perhaps our most interesting topic and most tangentially related to driving law topic is the issue of whether or not, um, the issue of whether or not the motives behind this were well thought out because one of the things that the counselor said when she introduced the motion and it's actually in the text of the motion which you can find on my blog if you want to read it um is that marginalized people people of color people who are in poverty are less likely to have driver's licenses and so therefore if you were to do this it wouldn't disproportionately rely on those people even though they're more likely to receive these tickets for fighting so why do it? So, uh, well, what I don't understand is how she comes to that conclusion that like certain groups of people are less likely to have driver's licenses. Like maybe people in poverty are less likely to have driver's licenses because of the fees associated with licensing schemes. But I'm sorry, indigenous people, people of color, but it doesn't. There's no connection there between your likelihood to have a license. None whatsoever. And I think it's a, a motion that is grounded in this significant amount of privilege uh, that not just, um, you know, Melissa DiGenova clearly has, but many city councillors in Vancouver have that is a negative, uh, negative reflection of the way the city is looking after the people who are most marginalized, which brings me back to my earlier point about punishing people who are so poor they have to sleep in their vehicles. And since Paul Doroshenko just ran off in the middle of our recording, we're going to have to save our third topic for another week. Um, but instead, I am bringing in Brandon Mosco, who is a lawyer also at Acumen, and who has a very interesting case that he's uh, arguing soon in the Court of Appeal related to driving. So Brandon, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm one of your loyal, loyal listeners, maybe the only one, but uh, staying loyal. So I'll, I'm excited to hear myself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, Paul and I were just talking about how uh, much he doesn't like to hear the sound of his own voice, which took me by surprise. I, I had that experience today when I was in court uh, for a traffic ticket for the, the justice of the peace before she made her decision. She wanted to 
hear something back from the recording, so she put on the speakers and decided to play it uh, right in front of the courthouse. It was, uh, yeah, it's, I, I get where he's coming from. I can say that. <laughs> um, anyway, so you argued, we talked about this on the podcast, Paul and I, a little while ago, a case involving driving prohibitions. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Remind the listeners that aren't you. So this specific case is, you can look it up on Canley now for our listeners that are, want to do something like that. It's McKeckern and British Columbia, the superintendent of motor vehicles. Uh, essentially what this was, was a driving prohibition that uh, Miss McKeckern got from a, a notice of intent. She got that in the mail because she received one cell phone ticket and she has an N license, a class seven license. And that's all it took to give her a three month prohibition um, a lawyer from our office, Emma, she wrote a letter uh, on her behalf to challenge that prohibition. And then the prohibition was reduced from three months to two months. Uh, and then I decided to take that further and appeal that decision um, to the Supreme Court, the decision of the, the, the adjudicator to reduce it by only one month. And then we were successful in having the whole prohibition terminated. Um, and then the reason for that, the main point made by the chamber's judge, in that case, uh, Justice Gash Joshki, I'm probably Jashi? butchering it, Jashi, <laughs> hopefully he's not listening, sorry, um, was that there needs to be a pattern of driving behavior uh, in order for the superintendent to issue a prohibition based on a driving record. And one ticket obviously can't be a pattern, um, so he determined that it was unreasonable. So since that decision, has the superintendent stopped giving people driving prohibitions for only getting one ticket? Uh, no, they haven't. Largely because yeah. they've appealed this. But so, it's still the law until it's overturned. Yes. And then there's been, and as you know, we do a lot of those letters to in response to notice of intents. Um, and, and since this, I've quoted um, the McEachern decision to these delegates that, that make decisions on these letters. And I provided a copy of it. Um, because this is very frequent, right, uh, with these end drivers or getting either a cell phone ticket or um, sometimes the other thing I see is um, if they get a speeding ticket and then they, they get a, a ticket alongside it with a contrary restriction or something like that, that can also lead to a prohibition. Um, but again, that's although that's two tickets, that's one incident. So there's right. still no pattern of driving behavior. So in those circumstances as well, I've made the McEachern argument. Um, and then they haven't been very receptive to it. <laughs> now, do they have any lawful basis for rejecting your argument based on a binding case from BC Supreme Court? Uh, well, they, they have quoted this, the MACE decision, that's M-A-C-E, which essentially um, reiterates the point that uh, the, the adjudicators and the superintendent have broad discretion to offer these driving prohibitions. Um, it really, what it's come down to, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's a little bit of sore throat today. Um, <clears throat> anyway, what this comes down to is that we've had subsequent prohibitions issued um, to people where they have this one cell phone ticket, and I've appealed them, and then I get a response from the superintendent is, well, let's stay this and wait for the McEachern appeal to go through. And I think that's probably being told to the adjudicators as well. Well, you can make, you can send this out and then if they challenge it, well, we'll just appeal it and then come right. May so when this thing is. Ignore the heard. law, we're working on fixing it. Yeah. 
Um, because, it, well, again, um, <clears throat> if I do get instructions from a client to appeal it, uh, we don't have to agree to a stay. I can say, well, let's go in front of a judge. Let's do it right away. And then they don't have a leg to stand on when that happens. But again... Um, then they're just going to turn around and appeal those decisions. Exactly. And it's so, more expense yes. and, and difficulty for the client. Although, do you not see, like, is there a potential value in setting all of them down, like six or seven or eight of them down on one day, and say that it's a flagrant pattern of the superintendent just ignoring the law? Perhaps. Um, again, we need the clients for it. Right. And we need to, I need to get instructions from them. Um, to to do something like that, um, and they're not necessarily going to want us to, to go for the expense of having me go to court um, just for potentially it to get appealed when I have to tell them, well, this is going to get appealed, right? So right. Um, and so, what is the status of the appeal on on McEckern? So it's scheduled right now um, for May second um, to be heard. And it's going to be heard jointly with Winthrop, which is the other main case, which uh, is also quoted in, in McEachern, which we relied on to get this decision, and which Justice Joshke, that's what I'll go with for his name, <laughs> relied on. Um, and right now we are in the process of working on our response to their factum. Okay. Well... Sorry, when did you say it was scheduled for? May 2nd. May 2nd. And on May 2nd, do you anticipate having a strong argument? Can you tell us what, what is the superintendent's position? Well, the superintendent's position is essentially, uh, I mean, if they're, they're relying a lot on the legislation. So the legislation says in the statutory scheme um, that any driving record that's in the opinion of the superintendent to be unsatisfactory can justify a prohibition in the interest of public safety. Um, and basically the McEachern decision says it can't just, they don't have this, this giant broad discretion. There has to be at least some connection between a pattern of driving behavior in, reflected in the record to justify this. So they're really bringing it down to sort of those basic principles of administrative law and statutory interpretation that where there are multiple reasonable interpretations of a piece of legislation, the tribunal gets to pick which one it goes with. Well, they're essentially saying that the chamber's judge erred in his interpretation of the legislation because there is no requirement in the legislation for this pattern uh, or this connection between the, the driving record and the, uh, the, the public safety interest. But, but the issue with that is that when you give them that broad discretion, I mean, then they could potentially prohibit someone in the interest of public safety with a clean driving record if it's their opinion that a clean driving record's unsatisfactory. Well, there can be other things on a driving record or a larger driving abstract. Maybe they failed their test too many times. Yep. Uh, okay. Could be anything like that. What uh what about the Winthrop case because that one's a little bit more nuanced than just a pattern of behavior. Now, wasn't Winthrop a case that involved a person who had an explanation for why they'd violated the law and even though they paid the ticket and they'd admitted guilt they still had an explanation that may have amounted to a defense in court and the superintendent erred in not considering that in making the determination about whether the record was unsatisfactory yeah that's i mean that's specific to to that case 
But uh, your your case, McEachern, she had a bit of an explanation as well. She she had that as well. I mean that that really depends because it's not something uh, it's not a rehearing of traffic court, right? The, but uh, what Winthrop said is you have to take into account the circumstances. So whatever we put out into the letter, uh, especially in, in the argument I made when I argued um, McEachern was that well, when you look at the circumstances of this offense, it's not it's also something that doesn't suggest that there's an interest uh, that the public safety is is harmed by her having this because it's not like I mean it's the difference between someone having a phone loose in a cup holder and someone you know texting and driving right that's a significant difference and that's something the superintendent should take it into account and that's kind of what was seen in Winthrop I mean that case specifically was regards to uh, an emergency situation which there is you know as you know in the actual motor vehicle act that is a defense mm-hmm. um, and whether or not, I don't, I'm not sure what happened in actual traffic court with that matter, but that they could have forwarded that defense in traffic court. And probably would have lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, Based on the, the nature of the emergency, but in any event. The, the point was that there was an explanation that made it unlikely that there was a risk of the behavior reoccurring. As opposed to the dude who's traveling around with his cell phone in his cup holder and picks it up at a red light to check his text messages, the likelihood of that happening again is higher than the only reason I answered my phone was because my son was in the hospital. Yeah, that that is essentially too. That's that's why that's something they should take into account, right? Because uh, you're looking at the future of public safety, and that's kind of what segued into the relationship between the record and the interest of public safety. And you can have 10 cell phone tickets if you just happen to have a lot of emergency situations. Uh, well, then maybe there is a pattern there. <laughs> maybe you, you need to reevaluate your life. <laughs> but uh, you get the point I'm making. Yes. Well, uh, thank you for joining me to talk about this. I'm going to have you back after the decision so you can either, you know, openly cry on the podcast okay. or, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a first bottle of champagne popped on the podcast. That would be good. I mean, we can we can have champagne either way, um, really. It has to be celebratory, so. Can, you can't cry into a bottle of champagne? Oh. What kind of man are you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. And that is Brandon Moscow. If you have a driving prohibition that you received for getting too many tickets or only one ticket and you want to appeal your decision from the superintendent of motor vehicles denying you uh, a reduction of time or or revocation of the prohibition contact brandon at our acumen law offices brandon works in richmond the number there is 604-370-3050 and you can always reach out to me at the vancouver office 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com thanks for tuning in to another exciting episode of driving law and next week we'll be back with paul doroshenko hopefully to actually talk about what we had intended to talk about this time